Hello, fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. This is the 1420 Podcast with your hosts, Andrew, and my good friend, Everett. Here, we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, how are you? I'm I'm good. I might, my muscle memory was a little off yeah, just now. I, I almost... I don't know what was happening. I, I saw that I saw the, the time cue pass because usually 12 seconds is where I start and then you didn't adjust the volume. I was like, eh, whatever. <laughs> we'll do this one live. <laughs> we'll do it live. Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, uh, you know, end of the work day as it were. Uh, I've had a kind of a, I had kind of a crazy work day, but that was fine. It just never felt like I got cut up. I just never felt like I got to a place where I felt anchored. It just felt like fluttering on the top of my work day all day. That's, I mean, that's kind of work. If you're ever caught up, you're in, especially in your line of work, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, but I, I mean, you know, there, there are times where I feel like, okay, I've got a handle on what I'm doing today. But, to, mm. but today was one of those days where uh, there was just brush fires. Just Tuesdays you know, th- are like that. You know those games where you have like, you've got to like make recipes or something and serve something and there's always something else that's shows. happening and all this, you know. Yeah. Uh, that, that's how it felt. Like there was just, oh, well, someone dropped a dirty dish off. I got to wash it and, you know, this and that. And it's just constant uh constant one thing after another it never felt like i had a, a firm grasp of what i was doing you know i i have said this for a lot of years and i and i will i will share this theory with all of you tuesdays are the worst day of the week not mondays everyone's like oh it's monday mondays suck no 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 tuesdays are are where the where the real hell of the work week lies cuz monday you come back in from your weekend mm-hmm. and everyone's buried no one really knows what the fuck is happening. They're trying to catch up from what just happened over the weekend, from all those those dog shit emails they got, the things they left for Monday morning. So Monday, everyone's just got their head buried, their nose down, and they're just powering through. They're just Monday is an act of survival. And then Tuesday's when people get the get the motivation up to start start throwing shit at you. Well, and today was both, because today was was both Tuesday. Oh, because it was President's Day yesterday. And, yeah. And yeah. and also Monday. So some people worked. I didn't really work. Yeah, so it was both of those things. It oh. was both Monday and Tuesday, so just fucking terrible. What a terrible day. <laughs> we used to, when I, when I was slinging beer, we, ha- we had uh, about quarterly what we'd call a Black Friday, and it was when the end of the month, the end of the quarter, or so the last selling day of the month and the last de- selling day of the quarter both fell on a Friday. And those were terrible days because Friday is a, typically a kind of, you know, manage your business day. You know, you, you get to go out on the trade and have, customer meetings and do all that kind of stuff but on fridays on black fridays it was here's all the beer you need to sell today godspeed godspeed yeah. go go with god as i say yeah uh, as i say often you you know uh it, it's any industry right yeah Everyone's any industry got you've yep. got ebbs and flows uh being an attorney some days it's uh some days it's really transactional um you, you know, I know what I need to have. I might get a call or two. Maybe I get a new client. Other days, uh, I, I do both transactional work and litigation, which means some of the things I do are business deals. But sixty uh, percent of my docket, as it were, is is focused on litigation, mediations, um, arbitration. So in that, we have discovery. Hey, give me your shit. Here's my shit, and then I review that. Uh, but then there'll be you know crises and and unexpected. Uh, unexpected, you know, Fuckery. oh, my roof started leaking. Oh, that's fucking great. Uh, you, you know, there goes there goes that settlement that, that was about to happen. So, uh, yeah, today was just one of those days where it was a bunch of shit that was not expected and and seriously changed the plan. But 
It's like anything else. You're dynamic. You, you get to it. And here you are at home. So speaking of the law. Yes. We're talking about watches. We are. And the law. And all in ones. And the law. Watches and the law. And for that, for that, we've got a guest. We've got a guest. Our guest is Tony of the Rescapement. And the Rescapement is, so I've read about this actually. When you introduce a guest, you're supposed to say all the things about the guest and then say their name. So I fucked oh, it up already. God, Everett. <laughs> Even though they've already read. They've already, they, read, they've already it. read it. They know, they know what they're getting into. They've so, fast forwarded these four and a half minutes. Rescapement is a regular newsletter that comes out. If you haven't signed up, sign up. It comes into your inbox. It's very unobtrusive. But Rescapement's sort of concentrated on vintage watches and just watch news. Uh, it's not solely vintage watches, but certainly uh, I think that that's their focus. And Tony can talk more to that once we introduce him here. Uh, he's actually, he doesn't know it yet, but he's unmuted. So he can he could pipe in and, and object if he wanted to. But, or he could say something terrible about you thinking you would not hear it. <laughs> the fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Tony! Well- you guys are lucky I haven't hung up already. Huh? I don't blame you. <laughs> How are you, man? No, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for that, uh, I'll say stellar introduction still. Excited to be here. Excited to be talking watches. I would say I'm an enthusiast first, lawyer second or third maybe, uh, but enthusiast is much higher on the list for sure. So, so Tony, you like me are a guy who's into watches and who also makes his money uh, practicing law. That's right. Yeah, I think uh, judging by the few gray hairs in your beard, I might see maybe it's just the pixelation. <laughs> I think you've got a few more years of experience than I do. Um, I'm only a couple of years deep, but yep, I'm a practicing attorney here in the city of Chicago, and then write a, a weekly newsletter on the side about uh, vintage watches mainly, but focused on watch industry news as a whole, just keeping people up to date on things that have happened throughout the week so they don't have to go scrolling through Watchville every every sort of minute or two to make sure they're catching up on whatever news news is happening in the industry. And and Tony, you the type of law you practice is different than the type of law I practice. So I'm primarily a construction lawyer. I tell people I do construction, I do real property uh, transactions and and litigation. You are uh, what what we'd call an intellectual property lawyer. Is that is that accurate to say? I'm more of a transactional attorney, but I focus on technology and IP transactions specifically. So I don't have much litigation experience. So I might be flailing around if we get too much into litigation speak, and you'll you can help me out there. But I'm on the transactional side of things for sure. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, and I can course correct on the on the litigation piece of this. But uh, uh, we are going to talk about we are going to talk about um, and, and the reason we brought Tony on. Tony sent us an article recently. Uh, about the Vordic, the Hamilton v. Vordic lawsuit. Uh, and if that's something, if those are words that, that are foreign to you, uh, bottom line, the skinny is, and we can get into more of this in detail later, but Hamilton, Hamilton, the Hamilton you know and love, has sued a small, I would say perhaps a micro brand watch company called Vortic Watches. Now, Vortic, if you if you haven't heard of them, you can go to their website. But Vortic is a company that takes vintage pocket watches, primarily vintage pocket watches. They preserve the movements and the dial, primarily American pocket watches. So they'll oftentimes take the dial and they'll take the movement, they'll get the movement working and in tip-top shape, and they'll pack it that package that movement and dial and hands and whatever else they can preserve into one of their one of their cases and these uh it, you know for obvious reasons are very big watches 
because because primarily they house pocket watches, but they're freaking cool. And and it's not like they have uh, regular lines. They're all different. And they're 3D printing those, am I correct? I think that they primarily 3D print. I don't know. They may machine as well, and maybe Tony knows more about that. Yeah, I think that's right. I haven't uh, not completely up to date with their entire manufacturing process, but I think that's right. And they're a American based company. They're out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, RT is the guy who runs the company. Um, by all accounts, a great guy and sort of a great American made, American manufactured company that's doing things the right way. It sounds like. And and so I think that the basics of this lawsuit. Well, actually, why don't we do this? Can, can we can we start first with a with talk about rescatement? I want to talk about that and how you got into that before we dive into this very big project that we're about to undertake. Can can I ask that question? It's your show, man. Okay, <laughs> Tony, what got you into publishing and writing a uh, weekly about watches? Like, how did how did that how did that come about? Yeah, so I started probably a year ago doing this, and I've always been interested in the watch industry. And when I left law school a couple of years ago, found myself having more time to dive deeply. And I think writing is a great way to sort of organize your thoughts and organize the things that I was really into learning about watches and started organizing those, throwing them into blog format and have always believed in sort of newsletter and direct to your inbox format as a way to really be able to connect with readers on a more casual level. So I've been doing that and building up the newsletter over the past year or so. And it, it really is a great way to connect with readers and be able to focus on sort of one topic a week and dive really deep into it and learn what, learn about it, learn with your readers ab- about it as well, and sort of just grow a community as well, really. I've, I, I've been able to meet a lot of great people through Instagram, through doing the newsletter, and it's been a great experience for the past year plus, and it's gotten me really involved in the watch community in ways I didn't think it would. And so... So you're writing this periodical. Let's go back a little bit further. What got you into watches? Does this say you got into it and you started writing and, and then those turn into your newsletters? Is it or, or where does that story begin? Like a lot of people, I think it begins farther back. I inherited a couple of my grandfather's watches. So he was in World War II. He's got some cool watches from that era and beyond. And then he's got the classic sort of American-made Elgin in Illinois, you know, little gold-filled dress watches. And when he passed, when I was in college or whenever it was, inherited a bunch of watches like that. And my dad and I started learning about them together a little bit and really dove off the deep end from there. And pretty quickly, you realize how much there is to sink your teeth into. And I've been going strong ever since. So is your collection primarily vintage American watches? Or do you do you dip your toes into into a wider pool of watches? No, I've got a bit of everything. You know, I, I, I love the brands that you guys talk about too. You know, the last watch I bought was a Oak and Oscar. So it's a micro brand here out of Chicago, went up to Chase is the guy who runs it, picked up the watch there, had a glass of whiskey with him. So it's really any, anything and everything interests me from the modern micro brands to, you know, <laughs> historic, uh, companies that are, taking uh, pocket, taking old pocket watches and throwing them in new cases. Pretty, pretty much anything about the industry is, is fascinating to me. Fantastic. What, are you wearing a watch now? 
<laughs> I, I'm on the East Coast, so I uh, or Central <laughs> Central Time Zone, but not anymore. But you know, my the Oak and Oscar I bought a month or so back has been my daily wear for for the past month or so, and it's it's a great watch. So they they released an Olmstead. It's called the Olmstead. It's a 38 millimeter. I think they call it a field watch. Yeah. Uh, a couple months back, and it's a it's a great great daily wear for someone with slightly smaller wrists like me. Fantastic, fantastic! Yeah, you know that's a company that I don't think we've ever talked about. Oak and Oscar, we may have we may have dropped their names in uh, in some of the uh, American Watch episodes, um, but <clears throat> uh, super neat company, uh, super neat watches, uh, and they've got they've got good sort of watch fam street cred too. I think which is which is something we we I don't know it, it, you naturally run into these brands that have uh just sort of ha- have met the popular ha- have crossed that the popularity threshold in terms of w- watch people i think that's right he's been doing it for five plus years now i want to say and you're right i think that you know it's, it's one of those companies a, a lot of micro brands are great on drawing on what enthusiasts are demanding in the forums or wherever else and Figuring out how to how to translate that into something that's new and modern, but still stays true to what enthusiasts know and love about the watches that already exist, and I think they're certainly one of the brands that's that's doing that right. Well, well, very one, cool. One question about that: Did you get it on the bracelet, and how is that bracelet? <laughs> I did get it on the bracelet, okay. and the reason I fell in love with the watch is because the bracelet is awesome. Money. What's what's the yep. bracelet? I haven't. I don't know that I. I don't know. That I'm I just can. always curious about about small brands bracelets, because uh, it's such an easy thing to cut corners on. Yeah, but what is it? It's just it's just a, an, a <laughs> oyster bracelet. I mean, I don't know. Like, what do you? No, I don't on? think there's anything. There's nothing particularly special about it, except that I think it's it's very clear that it's well thought out and it's not oh, an yeah. after. Like you're saying, I mean. Uh, a lot of these companies, it's an afterthought, and I think they they put thought into how long the end links are, and you know everything, everything like that. And I think it it shows in the final product. Very good, very good. So, so now, Mike, my, my burning questions for that are are up, and we are 15 minutes in, and we're about to dive into a big one: the law, the law. The law. Oh, well, why don't we back up? I think oh, okay, before sorry. we had started to talk a little bit about uh, the Vortic case, maybe maybe we take a second before we get there, and let's just talk a little bit about the broader uh, the broader picture of watch IP law, because I think that there's a bit of I, I mean a confusion. You know, Andrew and I would call this uh, a, a number of barracks lawyers, barracks lawyers. Uh, <laughs> that are in the watch community when a barracks lawyer is a private in the... In Who probably the, wasn't always a private. That, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, these are, these are inside jokes. Tony's giving us like a confused look. <laughs> a barracks lawyer is, uh, you know, s- some young soldier who in the barracks tells everybody what the rules are and what the law is. Uh, you know, oftentimes they're totally wrong. More often than not, ninety they're totally percent they're totally wrong. Or, or the thing that they're saying is some sort of amalgamation of actual rules mixed with conjecture, spiced with an outright false falsity uh, that that gets used in a way that's not only conversational but but profound and, and is misleading. And I think that we see some of that in watches. I think that people don't always understand 
intellectual property as it relates to watches. Uh, you, you know, it often, you know, you'll, you'll see in a forum, someone raises the question, how is that even legal? You, you know, and, and the answer is sometimes it's not, or, or sometimes it's, it's a gray area. Um, but I was hoping, Tony, you, with your background, could give us just sort of a very basic primer uh, you, you you know maybe maybe a, a five minute intro into watch IP, uh, how that manifests most commonly, and then as we move along, we can sort of narrow that down. But but sort of a uh, sort of a cr a crib sheet on the basics of watch IP law. Yeah, I'll I'll certainly do my best to draw upon the law school uh, things I learned back in the day. But I think on a broader level, the most important thing to understand is why IP law? Like, why do we have these laws and these rules to begin with? And I think the most important thing to understand is that we all kind of want the same thing here at the end of the day, in my opinion, at least. Go ahead. Have we, have we, ident have we uh, defined IP law too? Because there may be someone listening at home that doesn't. So IP being intellectual property, right? Right. So intellectual property in the in the world of watches, this generally means patents or trademarks. So patents being some sort of novel invention, like think of a company developing some cool new movement mechanism or a way to manufacture movement. Trademark being a logo or a company name that helps a customer understand where their watch is coming from or where any product is coming from. It's really important, though, to understand, I think, you know, all these laws might sound complex or obtuse, but at the end of the day, they're just incentive structures that are trying to achieve some underlying principle. And for IP law, that underlying principle is just to really promote the advance of the underlying science or technology or whatever it is. And I think most enthusiasts have some sort of intuitive understanding of that. Sure. And when we argue about these things, we tend to take others, we tend to take different sides in any particular case. Um, some may take Hamilton's side on this case, while most might be siding with Vortec, you know, in a tr traditional David versus Goliath scenario like this, we tend to root for the scrappy underdog in any event. But I think that misses the point a little bit in the sense that, um, what we really want, what we all really want is sort of what's best for the industry and understanding how we can promote the health of the industry for the long term. And that's sort of a brand agnostic position yeah. uh, where in this case, sort of a lot of people might view what Vortic is doing as kind of harmless. They're taking these old pocket watches and crafting their own cases so that they can sort of upcycle them and do something with these pocket watches that no one else was doing that would be laying in a landfill somewhere if not for what Vortec has been doing. And a lot of people arguing on the Vortec side of this case have some sort of intuitive understanding that this is innovative and this is exciting and IP law or the legal frameworks that we use should promote this type of activity and they shouldn't inhibit this type of activity. And people on the Hamilton side might argue something similar, but arrive at sort of the opposite conclusion instead looking at all of the investment that Hamilton has made in 
technology and building their brand and developing goodwill in the marketplace over the past century plus, really, um, and say that that's something that they should see a return on. And Vortic is, you know, for better or worse, free riding off of that goodwill. Um, it, and go ahead. It, yeah, no, I, I think I think that that is right. And I'm actually kind of excited because I'm sort of uh, I'm excited to hear that you're I, I can tell you're going to be able to take a conservative or maybe a not a contrarian uh, a position here, but but maybe something approaching that. And, and Andrew and I were talking about this before we went live. <clears throat> Uh, you know, it, it's going to be valuable in this conversation, I think, to really explore both sides and why it's important, w- why the conversation is as important as the winner. Because the the winner of this thing here, and, and really at this point, there aren't going to be winners. Uh, I, I don't think Vortic has uh, probably spent more money on legal fees than it had any anticipation of... Uh, you know, Hamilton, this is sort of a drop in the bucket. However, there may be some collateral damage in terms of reputation. So, you know, fights like this don't necessarily have clear outcomes, but it's important to have the conversation. And so we'll get back to that. But I want to I want to sort of step back into something that you mentioned for a second and just sort of lay the groundwork. You, you would discuss, you know, there, there's patent law and there's trademark law. And and there's another there's another sort of uh, of the three tiers of intellectual property copyright is is also uh, an element and I think maybe if we take just a second more to explore those three avenues what they are maybe in, in sort of we can talk about it in non watch terms because I think in 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 the world of watches we may have an idea of what those are but it might be easier to understand them from say. Uh, uh, the perspective of cars or medicine or or software because sometimes it's it's easier to understand the concept if you can understand it from another world. But for instance, trademark. Everyone knows that a blue oval with a cursive Ford written inside it is a trademark of Ford, unless Calvin is peeing on it. Uh, unless Calvin is peeing on it, and then it's and then it's fair use. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so can we talk a little bit about that? What what trademark is versus what um, copyright is versus what patent is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, trademark first is something like Ford, or not only the name but also the logo, intended to help consumers sort of be able to understand where the product or service is coming from. Um, that way, they can trust sort of where these things are coming from and understand that when they buy that car or when they buy that Coca-Cola or whatever it is, they know that they're getting what it purports to be and they're not getting some knockoff um, for all kinds of reasons, right? That can be safety reasons. You want to ensure you're getting the right quality product um, and you're not, you're getting what you pay for and you're getting what you think you're getting. Uh, Next, if you move on to, copyright that's really intended to protect protect more creative work so this audio for example uh of this podcast is something that's copyrightable you know your favorite music album your favorite novel things like that um intended to really protect creative works like that but it can also be things like software um anything that has a creative element to it or an artistic element uh 
is generally in broad strokes copyrightable. And finally, and, and, and perhaps with regards to copyright, perhaps uh, something that is creative but not necessarily innovative, right? Uh, something that wouldn't be eligible for patent uh, protection. Exactly, yeah. Which leads us to? Which leads us, of course, to patents, <laughs> which do need to be a novel invention. So in the watch world, of course, it might be a movement, but it could be a cool new car engine, um, a cool new medicine in the pharmaceutical industry, anything like that that really takes uh, sort of a novel step of inventorship. Uh, a lot, usually in the modern world, there's a lot of research and development involved in the process too. So those things we also deem as worthy of protection by, by granting patents. And generally, patented work, uh, to, to have your work patented requires a, a registration, right? So uh, you don't just receive a patent by way of inventing something, which is why Apple is constantly suing everyone. Not only suing people, but constantly registering uh, patents for things that maybe maybe are not even going to ever make it to market, or or sometimes they're buying patents to keep something off the market. A patent is a legal uh, a legal status that requires some sort of recognition from a government. And and, and Tony, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, uh, or or if I'm misconstruing it. Copyright, on the other hand, oftentimes happens almost automatically. Uh, is, is that fairly accurate? That's right. So copyright and trademarks, you can register at the federal level and you'll get additional protections there. But just by virtue of putting something out into the world, you can get copyright or certain copyright or trademark protections just by putting it into the world, which is not the case with patents, for example. So it seems like a big giant caveat within two of the things we just talked about is fair use. Can you... Can you fill us in a little bit on how fair use affects copyrights and trademarks? That's right. So generally, the biggest sort of caveat or affirmative defense, if you will, is um, in the world of copyrights and trademarks is something called fair use. And it's essentially something that says um, you can use, you know, excerpts of a copyright um, to refer to something else. And we decide that that's okay because it furthers, you know, whatever we're trying to do as a culture, you know, it could be commentary, it could be news reporting, it could be teaching, all kinds of things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis that use all kinds of previously copyrighted works. And we've decided that that's okay. We need that as a society and as a culture. And that's something that we do with copyrights and trademarks. Um, and like you said, it is the biggest caveat, I think, probably, to allowing for a limited use of those um, things that are otherwise protected. So and that's why I can sell stickers and monetize Calvin, copyrighted, <laughs> peeing on a Ford symbol, trademarked. Exactly, right? yeah. You see a lot, yeah. of, a lot of other satirical uses, okay. I think. Um, of certain brands or copyrights that, uh, you know, Weird, Weird Al Yankovic obviously made a career off of this type of stuff too. And uh, yeah, it's generally acceptable. And, and, and that's, I think that's an important distinction because when you refer to fair use, I think, uh, I'm, I'm not sure you, you exemplified it, but, but I think that there was a suggestion that there's an inherent value 
to uh, fair use. Uh, although with some of this stuff, it may be harder to suss out what the inherent value of Calvin peeing on a Ford logo is. Uh, so, so it's not that it necessarily has inherent value. As with all things with the law, we set the rules. There's left and right limits, and it's falling in there. But, but certainly parody or satire is a recognized fair use uh, with, within, the, within the world of intellectual property. Right, exactly, yeah. All right. All right. Well, I think that that is actually a great opportunity for us to move into this uh, this Vortic, this Vortic uh, lawsuit because um, now we've talked about we've talked about trademark because trademark is involved in this lawsuit. We've talked about um, uh, patent, not really involved. Copyrights, to a limited degree, copyrights involved here, but but more importantly, fair use, right? Because that's that's what this lawsuit is about, right? It's about trademark, fair use, and then this and then this confusion of the consumer, right? I think that that's probably that's probably what this case is about more than anything. Is that fair to say? That's right. So Hamilton brought, you know, basically they brought a, a handful of claims, but the two biggest ones are sort of trademark infringement and counterfeiting and sort of the operative test that the court will be looking at when they go to trial tomorrow is sort of confusion of the consumer. So Hamilton is basically going to be arguing that what Vortic is doing is confusing a consumer to the extent that consumers might think that when they're buying a Vortic uh, modified pocket watch, that they're buying something that's a legitimate Hamilton product. So that's what Vortic is going to be arguing when they step into, or excuse me, that's what Hamilton will be arguing when they step into court tomorrow. And Vortic will be trying to say that um, that's not in fact what's happening. And they'll be pointing to disclosures they've made on the watch, on their advertising materials, and on their website to try to prove their point on the other side. So uh, my good friend Andrew is is fairly skeptical about this lawsuit, and I don't think he's alone. I, I think that it's the knee-jerk, uh, the popular knee-jerk reaction uh, with regards to this lawsuit is, A, there's no confusion, and B... What the fuck is Hamilton talking about, right? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start. I'm going to open up with all my questions. So okay. qu- question number one <laughs> is, number one, it, should, should Vortic take this as, I mean, a compliment, the fact that they are big enough and carry enough weight within the industry that, they, that Hamilton uh, believes them to be threatening enough that they're going to address it legally. Because my assumption is that the reason that all these ripoff brands don't ever have lawsuits filed against them, even though they're using logos and complete appropriations of designs. The reasons that they're never being addressed is because they're not a threat. You, you, no one, everyone knows you're not going to buy a sub for $138, but you can buy something that looks exactly like a fucking sub with a Rolex logo on it for $138. So that's number one. Number one question is, is, is this a compliment to Vortic? Number two question is how is like you like you stated it earlier how is upcycling something that is otherwise refuse copyright infringement 
or in, in, in any kind of way in an IP violation that has risen to the level of being able to be heard in a courtroom. So I think for for just for the, the sake of keeping our, our arguments organized, we'll start with Tony presenting... Tony presenting... <laughs> what is this? It's you. I drew a quick portrait of you. Okay. We'll start... Yeah, sorry, guys. You're not. There's. I'm not. There's going to be no value to you at home. But this is funny, uh, and I'm sorry about that because uh, you're not going to get to know what it is. Uh, there is uh, Tony presenting Vortex's motion for summary judgment. Perhaps uh, I expect a full Kriak, uh <laughs> argument on this issue. I'm joking, obviously, but sort of give us the skinny on if if you're Vordick. What's the argument against? Right. So Vordick is arguing. They're going to be arguing a few things, really. So the main thing they're going to be arguing here in a case where potential trademark infringement or counterfeiting involves the... Tony, your cat is... is... <laughs> <laughs> your cat is not pleased about what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Oh, 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 okay. So. There it is right there. <laughs> <laughs> so in a case where, um, <laughs> in a case like this where the resale of a genuine product, so in this case, the the Hamilton dials and the Hamilton movements are genuine products mm -hmm. that are just being resold in these wristwatch, wristwatch cases that Vordick is manufacturing. The primary thing that a court is looking at really is whether the seller in Vordick in this case is making a full disclosure as to what they're doing. So are they describing the process of what they're doing accurately in their advertisements on the product if possible? Obviously these watches, while big, they're still only you know 45 millimeters or so, so there's not a huge opportunity to disclose what's happening on the watch. But Vortic will point to the fact that if you flip the case over, you'll see Vortic's name and Vortic's branding uh, featured as prominently, if not more prominently, than the Hamilton branding. Same thing will be happening on the website and on other advertisements and tweets even that are being brought to court. Um, Vortex going to be pointing out that the Vortex branding and the Vortex description of their manufacturing process is featured very prominently, whereas the Hamilton branding, the Hamilton logo on the dial, all of that stuff is much more minuscule in comparison. So that's good. That's something that Vortec's going to be relying on a lot as they go to trial here. And, and to be Hamilton. clear, Vortec is not is not using. They're not recreating Hamilton's logo, but for the fact that it exists on the dial. That's right. That's a good point to be clear about. So it, it exists on the dial. You'll also see it engraved in some of the movements too. And they, they tend to have sapphire case backs from what I understand. So you'll see some of the Hamilton engravings on the movements. But other than that, it's not something that they're recreating full stop at all. They don't have Hamilton, the Hamilton logo loaded into a CAD program and do laser or, or, or engraving on their watch rather they're taking their own stuff branding it with their name and reusing these hamilton logos of yore 
to my understanding, that's how it's working. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that's accurate. So, so there's a couple of facets to this litigation that are going to, or, or to the, the legal arguments that are going to be uh, interesting. And I think that this is going to be the one that gets the people most excited, but you know, cause there's, there's confusion to the consumer. What is, what is Vortic doing? And how is it confusing people? What, what they're using specifically, what articles of the trademark are they using uh, how are they using it? How are they implementing it? But then this is the one that I think is the most fun. And and I'm not sure that we've seen this argument play out, perhaps in the summary judgment, if you've had an opportunity to review those, but um, the sophistication of the consumer. And I think that that's the one that, that's going to be the most exciting for people. How does that play out in this lawsuit? That's right. That's us, guys. So I don't know how sophisticated you're feeling this evening, but... Uh... <laughs> We're on trial a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Real stick, sophisticated. Stick the pinky out as you sip whatever you're drinking on there. Um, it, it's it's a wild turkey so, highball, as we do. <laughs> as we do. Um, one of the elements courts look to when they're looking at whether there's a potential likelihood of confusion in a trademark infringement case is the, uh, the sophistication of the buyers. And the court actually in their last sort of speaking on this case, pointed to a, a previous case in which they said that uh, watch buyers tend to be pretty sophisticated, pointing to the fact that we're spending untold amounts of money on these products pretty much um, as sort of the dispositive factor in making that claim. So it sounds like they believe us to be pretty sophisticated for purposes of this analysis. Everybody knows that unsophisticated watch buyers buy movement, right, bro? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's interesting, and I think it's interesting. You, you know, I think it's an opportunity for Vortic to um, <clears throat> explore who, who's buying their watches uh, and, and to talk about who's buying their watches. It's an opportunity for us to think about who are we as consumers, what are we looking at, what do we know? Because really, uh, I, I think there's probably a handful of, of types of consumers that are buying uh, Vortic watches. I think that there are, you, you know, w within their own self-described customer classes, they have folks that have an old uh, pocket watch that's laying around that that they want to put back into use in, in something, in, in a manifestation that's more practical. I think there are also people like you who just, who have inherited a bunch of things and aren't intent on carrying a pocket watch. Y yeah. Like no, they want to carry that tradition and... and one, one and the same. Yeah. I think we're talking about the same yeah, thing. But, yeah. but, but it's it's you. Like you, Tony, you don't have pocket watches. No, no, I don't, but Tony yeah. does. Well, maybe. Well, My assumption is if he inherited watches, there's got to be a pocket watch in there. <laughs> right? Is there? I don't, think, I don't think there's any pocket watches. No. All Try. right. God damn it. Fucking tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you teed it up so good and then just <sighs> faltered at the Just lie. Know, <laughs> the point is... The, yeah. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't rehearse this if it's not clear. But the point is, the point stands true, right? That... I mean, they they have a couple lines of business, right? One is their pre-made watches, where they're going out and sourcing these things on eBay or at your local antique store or wherever. But an, an entire other line of their business is people finding them and sending in the pocket watches that they inherited from their great-grandparents probably at this point, and then upcycling those into wristwatches that they might be able to actually wear. So it's a good point that there is an entire subset of Vortex's customer base that is well aware of what's happening here. And in fact, that's why they sought them out. 
and, and, and they would know that they're not buying a Hamilton, a legitimate Hamilton product, because that's that's not why they came to Fordick. Because they sold them their they they sent them their <laughs> Hamilton product right. in order to get it back. <laughs> and, it's, it's a watch servicing. <laughs> Exactly. So for the record, we're more concerned about the folks that find Vortic watches somehow on Instagram or online or whatever, go to the website and say, oh, I'm buying this old, perhaps Hamilton watch. Right. And Hamilton does have a specific instance. They, It looks like for now, at least they had one email correspondence that a Hamilton employee had received where uh, someone had reached out to Hamilton and said, hey, these are really cool. Uh, where could I find one of these? And they attached a few images of Vortex wristwatches that had the Hamilton dial and Hamilton pocket watch movements inside of them. And they used that as evidence of actual confusion of the customers in the marketplace, thinking that these Vortex products were legitimate Hamilton products. And people were then reaching out to Hamilton, trying to find out where they could buy these legitimate Hamilton products. Well, that guy sucks. <laughs> Was it a Hamilton employee emailing another Hamilton employee? That's right. I think they're just emailing themselves. Uh. And so for the purposes of sort of summarizing the arguments, I, I think if you're if you're Vortic, you say, A, we're very clear about what we're doing in all of our promotional materials. B, we're not recreating the logo. Rather, we're using something that exists. This is an upcycling argument that right. you've referred to. And, and, and then C, uh, I'm always tempted when I do this, the ABC, to do the, the thing One, B, Pumbo. three. Yeah. 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 <laughs> One, B, D. So, and D uh, is uh, this idea that the people who are buying these tend to be, by and large, uh, sophisticated con consumers. Now, the the standard that the court's going to apply with regards to the consumer is, is sort of, uh, you, you know, it, it, this is a little bit of colloquial, but 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 perhaps the average consumer, or or in actual legal speak, the reasonable consumer. Reasonable sounds like a wishy washy word, uh, and and it really isn't. It's an objective term. Uh, the court oftentimes, in many different facets of law, identifies the behavior of a reasonable person. And so in this case, it's going to be a reasonable person who is in the same shoes as the average consumer of a Vortic watch. So maybe not average, but the, the, the I don't know, what, what, what's the term I'm looking for, Tony? The average, the right? Consumer, the typical, yeah. yeah, that's maybe a better typical. term. But yeah. the typical consumer, customer of Vortic watches, being reasonable, objectively reasonable, what are going to be their expectations? Is that fair? I think that's fair, and I think that's exactly what they'll be looking at tomorrow, and they'll be looking at a lot of the things that we discussed. So how is Vortic holding out their watches on their websites, their advertisements, and all of that? And it'll be interesting to see what they decide. And, and so, Tony, I'm going to need you – sorry, Andrew took a deep inhalation, which means he wants to say something, but I'm going to cut him off because he's got a bunch of things he wants to ask, and I think it's going to be better after this next section. So what I want you to do, Tony, I want you to take off that Vorticat, which I like that. Go ahead and send me that. Uh, take off your Vorticat <laughs> and now put on your uh, your watch giant corporate consumer Hamilton Swatch Group, Swatch group hat. And tell me why – tell me why, A, two things – a, why does Hamilton win? And B, not to say they're going to win, but but if assuming they do, why do they win? And, and B, 
why is my argument even reasonable? And because, three, why do they give a shit? Well, yeah, yeah. I think that those those are the yeah. same things, right? Why do we? Why does Hamilton need to make this argument? So, a, why do I win? And b, why do I need to make this argument? Yeah, I think it comes down to really a brand protection argument. So, looking at sort of from the get go, you have to understand that these are legitimate trademarks, legitimate logos of Hamilton that they've had for the past hundred plus years. And they've invested heavily in protecting these, developing goodwill in the marketplace, all of these things. And you see a young upstart brand like Fortic come along and uh, through no branding of their own, essentially free ride on all of the hard work that Hamilton has done to develop that goodwill, develop that branding in the marketplace. And you see an email from someone that says, hey, I, I see these cool watches from this random website. Um, where can I get one? And to you, it looks like someone is holding out their products as legitimate Hamilton products when, in fact, they're not. And you get pretty frustrated with that um, because you want people buying Hamilton products only from you. And further, you want total control of your brand in the marketplace. So you don't want someone else um, dictating how others might view your brand. And when someone sort of steps on your toes to that extent, uh, of course you're going to bring a lawsuit against them and you're going to try to stop them from doing what they're doing, no, no matter how big or small they are. Uh, on top of that, there is some, some argument to be made that when you have these trademarks, you need to go about protecting them when you become aware of a, a potential infringement on them. Otherwise, you might waive sort of future claims against the against that. So I think Hamilton is really looking at all of these all of these things when they brought the suit. So they filed a cease and desist back in 2015. And when Vortex sort of ignored that, they eventually filed suit in 2017. And uh, the, the, the complaint has been going over the past couple of years, and it's brought us to this moment sort of at the end of the road now. So there's some corporate value, right, in terms of protecting your identity. But there's maybe also a bigger picture value to the arguments of Hamilton um, in, in terms of uh, there, there's a cultural value to to the position that Hamilton's taking, broadly speaking, maybe not to the specifics or the nuances of their argument, but I, I think that there's a, a big picture cultural value to that. And, and, and it's grounded in, it's grounded in the bedrock of our Republic, uh, it, as well as sort of, it, you know, these ideas of, of general or common law. Um, but it's, it's a constitutional principle. It, it, do you think that's fair to say? Well, I I want to I want to interject there. I think it's in part they're protecting their their current intellectual property here. They're they're they don't produce these pocket watches anymore. There's a reason for it. Yeah. They're here in this modern era. Mm -hmm. Anything out there with the Hamilton logo across the dial represents Hamilton, and they want to control what is in the market and exists. There's there's the reason they're not producing pocket watches anymore is because those are not the Hamilton image they want projected. 
I think they're totally okay with those pocket watches going into the dump. And in fact, would prefer it because if they, if a Hamilton logo is out there, they want it to look like the one that is currently on your wrist. This is the old Hamilton logo. Well, they want it to look like that. <laughs> they they want to control what the what the market sees. I think that's different, though. I, I, I mean, I think that that's I think that that's more that first category, that sort of corporate value. I, I think there's also a bigger picture value to having long term ownership over your brand and and your and your uh, intellectual property. What do you think, Tony? You're you're a you're a big corporate. You're you are a big firm guy. You get paid lots of money by big valuable companies. What do you think? No, expand a little bit more on what you're trying to say there. So you you're saying that they're a little bit more concerned with their future position and ensuring that they're protecting themselves going forward, and not so much uh, they're not really concerned with the backward looking portion of this. Well, I, I think that I think that those things I think both things exist. I, I think that there is a certain amount of value and, and to be clear, I'm not making any specific arguments with regards to this specific issue. But just generally speaking, I think that there's value to our culture, to our our republic and our culture in providing companies a certain amount of security that their brand, their copyrighted material uh, that their that their stuff, their intellectual property, remains their intellectual property. I think that that's valuable in a way that it, it's it's important to color this conversation with. I think that it's really easy for us to say Vortic is a cool company made of cool dudes, and they win because we want them to win. But there's value to intellectual property rights. Because it's it's wealth they have amassed over a century of business, and that's their property today, just as it was when it was in production. That's right. That's right. And if they want it in the trash, that's where it belongs. I, I mean, perhaps, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Which is not to say that in this case, Hamilton's right. No, I think you're right. I think in... IP, there's kind of this fundamental push and pull between the past and the future, if you will. So on the one hand, protecting the heavy investments that a company like Hamilton, in this case, has made in developing the IP and protecting and building up the trademarks, it's done. Uh, but at the same time, also allowing future inventors to be able to leverage the IP and the things that those other companies have done to be able to push and promote the industry farther forward. And that's sort of the fundamental argument, I think, that is happening in a lot of these cases. So how does this affect the watch world? In, in a world where, say, Hamilton wins, how does that affect the watch world? Because in a world where Vortec wins, we're basically status quo unchanged. In a world where Hamilton wins, how does that affect the watch world, watch design, micro brands what what do you think what do you see the the lasting effects and and the ripples throughout the watch industry being it's interesting because as you guys pointed out at the beginning there are tons of companies that are doing things similar to this and the question is why doesn't swatch group come along or rolex come along and squash all of them and perhaps 
the answer is they're not big enough. And Vordick is the unlucky one that got big enough to raise the eyebrow of Swatch and Hamilton such that they decided to go after them. So perhaps the answer is nothing much changes. There's going to be uh, a plethora of brands continuing to do what they do, um, which is draw on the existing IP of companies and conglomerates that have existed for years and do what they want to do to build their cool company and push the industry forward and do whatever they want to do. Um, on the other hand, perhaps it will make these companies think twice before they decide to do something that might threaten the IP positions of these large companies, um, seeing how it damaged a company like Vortic if Vortic were to lose this case. So there are a number of other cases that are active right now. So Rolex is going after a small California startup that is refinishing Rolex and Cartier watches and adding colorful dials and colorful straps and colorful bezels to them. And they're doing a lot of the same things that a company like Vortic is doing and leveraging the IP of companies that have existed for generations to build a cool young company and it's exciting for a lot of consumers, and they've built a business around it. But at the same time, they're now being sued by Rolex. And if they were to lose that suit, um, it's going to make the next company think twice before they decide that they want to do something with a Rolex watch that they think is cool and interesting that customers are going to like. And, you know, I, I think actually because of the specifics of this case, there's probably a fairly limited, uh, there's probably a fairly limited precedent either way. There's probably a fairly limited precedent that's going to be set. I, I think that the precedent is more powerful to the extent Vordick wins. I think if Hamilton wins, the precedent set by this case is fairly limited. Uh, and, and there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, one, there's a sort of famous lawsuit, same same locale, same jurisdiction, as it were, as as this locate locate uh, this litigation, which is Southern District of New York. Southern District of New York is known as a very uh, sort of corporation-friendly federal district. Do you think that's fair to say, Tony? That's right. It's it's the district that's the home to Wall Street, for example. Yeah, yeah that's that's right. Uh, so Southern District of New York uh, famously, Adam RBK uh, sued Swiss Legend, which is not a an extremely prominent uh, watch company in our conversations, but they're a big company. Uh, they're a big company. They make a bunch of watches. Uh, I think at one point they had 2,000 SKUs. And um, and, and they sell their watches between $200 and, and $800 maybe in that range. Uh, but they had made a Royal Oak homage, I think is the word uh, watch people would, would use just colloquially. But it was a watch that was very similar to the Royal Oak in, in a number of facets. And... Adam RPK sued them. Adam RPK won that lawsuit. And perhaps Swiss Legend isn't even a brand anymore because the judgment was giant. It was all the profits they've ever made and I think treble damages. And I, I, I don't know if it put Swiss Legend under, but uh, it, it was it was a big, a big judgment. Um, but it had very little lasting effect on the, the homage watch industry. Uh, I would I would argue perhaps even imperceptible effect on the homage watch industry. Uh, so I think that this case probably has even less of an opportunity to 
negatively affect innovation or or even perhaps uh, copying or replicating famous watch brands. Uh, would you disagree? No, I think that's right. And if you look at you know cases that are referenced in the decisions made so far in this case, you'll see a litany of cases in which companies like Rolex, Movado, AP are suing small companies like this and winning and uh, winning damages, getting these companies to stop portions of their business. So I think it's right that there's a pretty extensive precedent for large companies having already having success in winning cases like this. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got? I'm just wondering how this affects the monetizing of the watch modding world, say companies that uh, sell custom SNK or, or SKX dials where they've, they've bought that dial and maybe painted it or, or I'm, I'm just wondering where, there's a gray area, right? And and where do things fall out of that black or out of that gray area and into black or white? Say, look at Invicta. Look at at uh, even homage watches like Bernhardt does does the Explorer homage that you know, barring the price, what's the what's the big difference in in the way of appearance? And and I'm just I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around where it is an IP violation versus yeah that's okay right so the first thing i'd say is sort of it does come back to that are they confusing the consumer question Mm -hmm. so i think a lot of these cases it's pretty clear that what you're buying is not an actual rolex or an actual whatever it might be you know you're buying a modded seiko or you know you're buying um a Royal Oak that's a 20th of the price of the actual Royal Oak. That and says you're okay. Swiss legend on it. Says or Swiss says Royal Oak on it. Yeah. Um, and you're generally okay with that uh, for whatever reason. And the line is drawn, in this case, the line was specifically drawn because the Hamilton name appears on the dial. It appears on the website. And Hamilton took issue with that for obvious reasons. Um And that's really the hook that gets anything in here. When you're actually using a company's trademark or logo, that's when you're kind of potentially in the courthouse door um, in potentially infringing on something. If it's an homage that looks like something else, um, you know, that's fine to the extent you're not leveraging a company's uh, actual trademark or logo. Um, That's not going to actually be confusing the consumer to the extent that you think you're buying uh, a legitimate product of whatever that company might be. Sure, sure. And and I, and I think it. to a certain degree that Swiss legend case sort of outlines perhaps the right limits of of what you can do. Uh you, you, you know, for whatever for whatever reason, for a number of reasons the court found that they were too close. So I think that 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 is is a conversation and I think it's gray and I think that uh the conversation is still active, and I don't think that there is a clearly defined standard. So, Each court case at a time. Well, I hate to say it, because I think we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but... I looked at the time a couple of times, I was like, this might be split up into two episodes. Right. <laughs> we certainly could. Uh, we're about an hour right now. We're about an hour right now. Uh, that's the time we're normally thinking about wrapping, but we've got we've got some other things to talk about. We do have some other things to talk about. We've got some other things. Andrew, uh, uh, other things, what you got, man? I need to light it up. So, uh, Lighten it up. Lighten I, this shit up. I, 
I recently I, I undertook a project, a a, a, a a home updating project at the I know, house. I know what's coming. And I needed a tool. And I'm usually a buy nice, not twice type person. But for whatever reason, for this instance, even though I know I'm going to use this tool frequently, I decided to go to Harbor Freight. Harbor Freight. Harbor Freight. It's a, it's it is across America, y'all. You have probably seen it in a real sketchy strip mall somewhere in a uh, in an area of town that you either live in it, hate, or you try to avoid. It's in between the adult shop and the equipment rental place, and then two doors down from the liquor store, always. <laughs> but I'll tell you. <laughs> So I went and bought a, a belt sander. And I know, I, I don't know why I didn't have a belt sander already. And I also don't know why I didn't buy a good belt sander. Because I am, like I said, I'm a buy nice, not twice type of person. But I went and bought a belt sander from Harbor Freight for like 30 bucks. Uh, and I, uh, so I, I used the shit out of it to uh, do, do some, do some breakdown of some texture on some walls. Uh, and I, what I'm saying is, it, it is by a company by called Chicago Electric, and that is the, the in-house CE yeah, Red brand. CE Red brand. All the tools are red. Chicago Electric, it, by by my um, understanding of it, is the in-house brand of Harbor Freight, and everything costs next to nothing. Mm-hmm. When I walk in, mm-hmm. I grab mm-hmm. my cart, I push my push my cart through the uh, through the automatic doors, and I wanted to fucking buy everything because it's also cheap i bought a bunch of pull out like in-home lanterns that are like 6.99 they're always that. it's it's like that. invicta they're always marked down 90 percent. and i i'm just walking through this whole store i'm like oh, i gotta buy that i need a dremel i need a router i need a belt sander give me that fuck yeah i need a 55 pound anvil <laughs> it, it what it comes down to is guys visit your harbor freight if you've got 20 bucks burning a hole in the bottom of your pocket and you want to buy one of everything get off a of joma shop and, that citizen is not going to make you happy. And here's the thing, and I I put I put some pressure on that belt sander, and I fairness I used it for a full day. Yeah, and it, I'm pretty pretty happy with the quality of that Chicago electric tool. I've never used any any CE tools before, but I'm I know it's going to start up the next time I use it. And I think it, I think these are probably like a, for for a tool that you're going to buy for a specific application and probably only use once. I think Chicago Electric might be the way to go. Yeah, I think I've got the same belt sander you do, and and I had the same exact thought process. Uh, yeah, Chicago Electric, man, get down on it, y'all. Just go visit your Harbor Freight, and just it's like food and stuff from Parks and Rec. Just roll in and be like, get "What the damn. fuck? Why is that there? They have welders for like eighty six cents. It's just it's insane. <laughs> don't buy that. No, definitely don't buy that. Uh, but go visit your Harbor Freight. Buy a bunch of shit that you're probably gonna buy already for one tenth the price because you can afford to buy ten of them for less than you're going to pay for a reasonable brand. I bought an espresso machine. You did. I saw it. You almost... I, I thought for a moment that you were making an espresso. Uh, like tonight? Yeah. When yeah. you were demonstrating oh. its functionalities to I, me. I was just showing you how it works. I mean, I know how... But did continue. you want an espresso? I'll make I didn't. One. I didn't. I don't. Still don't. Got to be up early. Got to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> My six-day weekend is concluded. I bought an espresso machine, man. You did. I did the full. I did the full thing. I did the full thing. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, buying an espresso machine is more complicated 
than buying your first first automatic watch. Okay. The so espresso here. machine world is a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole. Oh fuck! They're worse than watch people. Oh, you know, and and. and <laughs> Cost of entry is higher too. Significantly, cost of entry is higher. I, I mean, there aren't there aren't affordable espresso machine podcasts. You, you know, I th- <laughs> <laughs> I think that the I, I mean, but it's the same, right? I, I mean, there's all these things that I don't know if I need to care about, and, and espresso people are the same fucking people as watch people. You know, it's really hard. It's really hard to come from no knowledge. Like, right? I started at no knowledge. It's hard to come from no knowledge to a place where I feel comfortable dropping six hundred plus bucks. Six hundred. You should have just brought it. Bought at Dutch Brothers. I know. <laughs> It'd have been cheaper. Yeah. It'd have been cheaper. Uh, do you guys have Dutch Brothers in Chicago? You don't, right? I don't think so. They're but, like they're like drive-through Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a chain. They have you know six in every city, and you know they're it's a kiosk. Anyway, it's a it's a chain. Uh, BlackRock. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, we're in the Northwest. We, wherever you shopping. are in the world, you've got some chain espresso place that's probably got uh, attractive young ladies working the window and whatever, right? This is the place you go and drop your six bucks for your foamy latte and or energy drink, whatever. They have them everywhere. Yeah. It would have been cheaper to buy <laughs> long term probably yeah <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's crazy and and i don't know what i don't know either right mm-hmm. everybody talks about every single thing as if it were the end of the world you can't have a, a medium grade a grinder you know the the least expensive grinder you can possibly get away with costs twelve hundred dollars because anything else is trash and the least expensive tamper which is just a little piece it's a piece of it's a fucking puck. The least expensive tamper that you should possibly use is is this fourteen hundred dollars. <laughs> That's and right. made it, of pure gold and plated and encrusted with diamonds. And it's like, oh well, hey, I found this. I found this machine that I think is going to be okay, uh, and I think it's going to work for me. What do you think of this? I, I'm not posting on forums. I'm still just lurking on forums, right? Because I'm not deep enough to be posting. <laughs> not uh, yet. Uh, but you know, uh, you, you know, someone will say, "Hey, I, what do you guys think about this machine?" Oh, well, the portafilter is not a standard size, and so long term, you're gonna not like that, and yada yada yada. And it's like, fuck, man. There's so much thing. Yeah, you know, if I had bought the bare minimum equipment based on the forums, I'd be like twenty eight hundred dollars in right now. And you still wouldn't have an espresso machine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I went, I went more conservative. I, I, I bought a Breville Barista Express. These machines, I think, retail for about 700 bucks. I got mine used for less than that. It was rebuilt by a guy who is a, a technician. He works on these And that's things. a whole market in and of itself. There's that dude. That's what he does. Yeah, that's what he does. Yeah. He rebuilds espresso machines. Yeah, that's right. So I, I bought that's a my used... Kind of guy. Barista Express, Breville is a company, and they've got fantastic warranties. Uh, but I'm stoked. I'm learning how to pull shots. You don't, you don't, you don't make shots or brew shots. You pull them. You pull them. Mm-hmm. Have you bought your brew retrograph to time your pulls? I haven't, but that's next. I'm going to call John <laughs> and get a brew retrograph. So, uh, yeah. So that's it. Now, now, Tony, you're here, and, and we've discussed this. Are, are you comfortable? Do you have another thing you'd like to talk about? You know, I'll no say, is I, not an acceptable answer, by yeah. the way. I recently bought a 
chore jacket and I've not been introduced to the versatility of the chore jacket before. So uh-huh. I realize this is a very sort of 2015 discovery of mine. But no, no. Bring let it. me tell you, I've worn this pretty much every day and everywhere from the, from the office to, to the playground to going out at night. Um, it's the most versatile thing I, I have in my closet. Um, just a humble olive green chore jacket that I bought off of uh, Grailed or eBay. And um, it's probably one of the best clothing purchases I made in the past year or so. And what'd you get? What'd you get? I need to know. Just a standard uh, olive colored chore jacket from Corridor, I believe. Corridor, uh, okay. Bought it, bought it used uh, as any good consumer might. Yeah. Um, but just the versatility of it is quite amazing. Because the break-in period for something like that is is obnoxious. Like you, yeah, you yeah. buy you buy a a uh, a duck Carhartt jacket, mm-hmm. and and you are embarrassed to wear it in public mm-hmm. for like five years. Yeah, that's right. You've got to like r- like take it outside and roll in the gravel. Yeah, in the gravel pit in the backyard. Right. Yeah, that's right. I got that's why I got a simple one. You know, it's a couple seasons old. Um, it looked nice and worn in the photos, and uh, all the hard work is done for me to just kind of enjoy it everywhere I go now. So it's been a, a real discovery for me to I, put it on and look good. I, I went through this process. Exactly. Couple, I, I went through this process a couple years ago. I was looking for a, a field, quote unquote, field jacket, which a chore jacket, Similar, a, yeah. a, a field jacket is sort of uh, an extension. I, I, I looked at Filson. I looked at L.O. Beans, got one of the classic field jackets. Um, I looked at a couple of these sort of new startup, modern brands. I, I wound up settling on a used L.L. Bean barn jacket, which is more of a traditional classic. Uh, it doesn't fit anymore, which is really... Oh, it got too skinny. Which <laughs> is really very sad. But it was just a, a simple, thinsulate-lined barn jacket. I really love that thing, and I have to find one in a more appropriate size now. I have a 1970s uh, OD field jacket that mm-hmm. I wear from time to time. Like it's, an M50. Yeah, like the like was issued yeah. to my dad. And I just got all the name tapes and everything off it. I do wear that from time to time. Love it. Yeah. It's got that the V tail in the back. Oh, you know it does. And yeah. the pull tabs and everything. Yeah. I've I've got one of those. It's a modern, it's a waterproof Levi's jacket. But yeah. 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 Well, very cool. Other things, we're all settled. Tony, thank you very much for joining us, man. So I, I'm just gonna tell everybody, go to escapement.com uh and and subscribe to the Rescapement newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter. It, like I said, unobtrusive. He, I think Tony's only selling your stuff to a limited number of Chinese uh, listservs at this point. It's only six, man. Right. <laughs> gotta pay the, gotta keep the electricity on. Chicago's expensive. I, I assume Tony, you actually don't sell anybody's information or give it out. And if you can, do, we'll just edit this out. <laughs> I can only aspire to such things. <laughs> uh, com. you can register there. Uh, you enter in, you know, you can create a dummy email, right? This, this is 20, 2020, <laughs> folks. Just create a dummy email for, for your Riscatement uh, subscription. But uh, anything else? Uh, where, where do folks find you besides Riscatement.com? Just find me there. I've got my bio up there, too. That's pretty easy to find. Click around, and you'll find everything you need to know about me and about us. All right, fantastic. And then you're at Riscatement on Instagram. Is that right? That's right. Also at Riscatement on Instagram. Set on those socials early. Boom. Smash that like button, y'all. Andrew, anything else you want to say before we we get moving for the day? I do not. 
All right, folks. Uh, check out Tony. Check out Rescapement. Sign up for the newsletter. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 40 and 20. Check us out on Instagram at 40 and 20. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Tony. Check us out on Patreon.com slash 40 and 20. Check us out on YouTube, 40 and 20. Don't forget to tune back in next Thursday for another hour of watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Bye-bye. <laughs>